Section 23 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 23. Chapter 7. The Expansion of the Teutons, by Martin Bang. Part 2. In the east, on the frontiers of Europe and Asia, the Germanic race attracted little notice. But in the west, about the close of the second century BC, it shook the edifice of the Roman state to its foundations and spread the terror of its name over the whole of western Europe. It was the Cimbri, along with their allies the Teutones and the Ambrones, who for half a score of years kept the world in suspense. All three peoples were doubtless of Germanic stock. We may take it as established that the original home of the Cimbri was on the Jutish peninsula, that of the Teutones somewhere between the Ems and the Weser, and that of the Ambrones in the same neighborhood, also along the North Sea coast. The cause of their migration was the constant encroachment of the sea upon their coasts, the occasion being an inundation which devastated their territory great stretches of it being engulfed by the sea. This is the account given by ancient writers, and we have no reason to doubt its truth. The exodus of all three peoples took place about the same time, and obviously in such a way that from the first they went forward in close touch with one another. First they turned southwards, probably following the line of the Elbe, crossed the Erzebirge, and pressed on into Bohemia, the land of the Boi. Driven back by the latter, they seem to have made their way along the valley of the March, southwards to the Danube, and then through Pannonia into the country of the Scordisci. Here, too, they encountered, in the year 114, such a vigorous opposition that they preferred to turn westwards. That brought them into contact with the Taurisci, who had just, B.C. 115, formed a close alliance with the Romans. In the Carnic Alps was stationed a Roman army under the command of the consul Captain Papirius Carbo, which immediately advanced into Noricum. Carbo's attempt by means of a treacherous attack to annihilate the Teutons ended in a severe defeat. The way into Italy now lay open to the victors, but so great was the awe in which they still held the Roman name that they promptly turned away towards the north. Their route led them to the territory of the Helveti, which then extended from the Lake of Constance as far as the Main. The Helveti do not seem to have offered any resistance. Indeed, a considerable section of the Helveti, the Tigurini and the Toigeni, attached themselves to the Teutonic migrants. The Germanic hosts then crossed the Rhine and pressed on southwards, plundering as they went. In B.C. 109, they halted in the valley of the Rhone, on the frontier of the Roman province of Transalpine Gaul, for the protection of which a strong army under the consul M. Junius Silanus had taken the field. The Romans attacked, but were defeated for the second time. Again, the Germans shrank from the invading Roman territory and preferred to plunder and ravage the Gallic districts, which they completely laid waste. Finally, in the year 105, they appeared once more on the frontier of the province, this time resolved to attack the Romans. 
Of the three armies which opposed them, that of the legate Marcus Aurelius Scorus was the first defeated in the territory of the Alloroges. On the 6th of October followed the bloody battle of Arausio, in which the other two armies under the consul captain Malleus Maximus and the proconsul Q. Servilius Capio, in all some 60,000 troops, were completely annihilated. But instead of marching into Italy, the barbarians once again let the favorable moment slip and thus lost the fruits of their victory. They divided their forces. The Cimbri marched away westwards, first into the country of the Volcae, and then on over the Pyrenees into Spain, where they carried on a desultory and indecisive struggle with the Celtiberi. The Teutons and Helvetii turned northwards to continue the work of plundering Gaul. In 103, the Cimbrian hosts made their way back to Gaul and reunited, in the territory of the South Belgic Veliocasses, with their comrades who had remained behind. Now, at last, they prepared a march upon Italy. In the spring of 102, the main mass of the united hordes began to move southwards. Only one section, of about 6,000 men, the nucleus of the later tribe, of the Adwatuchi, remained behind in Belgica to guard the spoils. Doubtless with a view to the difficulties of the passage of the Alps, especially in the matter of supply, the invading host was before long divided into three columns. The plan was that the Teutones and the Ambrones should make their way into the plain of the Po from the western side, crossing the Maritime Alps, while the Cimbri and the Tigurini should make a wide flanking movement and enter from the north, the former by way of the Tridentine, the latter by way of the Noric Alps. But the attempt was planned on too vast a scale, and was wrecked by the military skill of Marius. The Ambrones and Teutones were annihilated in the double battle near Aquae Sextiae, summer 102, while the fate of the Cimbri overtook them in the following year. They had already reached the soil of Italy, into which they had forced their way after a victorious encounter with Quintius Lutatius Catullus on the Adige, when, 30th of July, 101, on the plains of Vercelli, the so-called Campi Raudii, they were utterly routed by the united forces of Marius and Catullus. The Tigurini, who were to form the third invading force, received the news of the defeat of the Cimbri when they were still on the Noric Alps, and immediately turned round and retired to their own country. Thus, the great invasion of the northern barbarians was defeated, and Western Europe could once more breathe freely. We saw above that about B.C. 100, doubtless in connection with the appearance of the Cimbri and Teutones in South Germany, the line of the Main was crossed by the Germanic peoples, and the settlement of the territory between that and the Danube began. Less than a generation later, there was another attempt to extend the Germanic sphere of influence westward over Gaul. About the year B.C. 71, on the invitation of the powerful tribe of the Sequani, Ariovistus, chief of the Suebi, crossed the Rhine with 15,000 warriors to serve as mercenaries to the Sequani against their neighbors, the Aedui. But after the victory was won, the strangers did not return to their own land, but remained on the western side of the Rhine and established themselves in the territory of their employers, 
taking possession of about a third of it, presumably at its northern extremity. Strengthened by large accessions from the homeland, this Germanic settlement on Gaulish territory, it consisted of the Vangiones, Nemetes, and Triboci, and finally extended over the whole of the left side of the Rhine Valley, eastward of the Vosges, soon became a menace to all the surrounding tribes. A united attempt, in which the Aedui took a leading part, to expel the intruders by force of arms, ended after months of indecisive fighting in a crushing defeat of the Gauls at Admade Taubergia, apparently in the year B.C. 61. Gaul lay defenseless at the feet of the victors, and they did not fail to make the most of their success. The Aedui and all their adherents were forced to give hostages and to pay a yearly tribute. None dared to oppose the conquerors, who already regarded the whole of Gaul as their prey. They pursued their work deliberately and systematically, constantly bringing in new swarms of their compatriots, chiefly Suebi and Marcomanni, and assigning them lands in the territories which they had subjugated. Settlers even came in from Jutland and Ducey and Harudis, 24,000 strong, and on their arrival the Sequani were forced to give up another third of their territory to the newcomers. Thus, the power of Ariovistus became very formidable. The establishment of a great Germanic empire over the whole of Gaul seemed not far distant. At other points also, the Teutons were preparing to cross the Rhine. It seemed as if the example set by Ariovistus would lead to a general invasion of Gaul, flood the whole country with Germans, and overwhelm the Gaulish race. The movement began on the Upper Rhine, on the Helvetic border. The Helveti had been obliged, as we have already seen, to retire further and further before the pressure of the Germans, until finally all the country north of the Lake of Constance was lost to them, and the Rhine became their northern frontier. Even here they were not allowed to rest. A short time after the appearance of Ariovistus, the Teutons had again endeavored to enlarge their border toward the south, and there ensued a long struggle upon the Rhine frontier. It was only by their utmost efforts that the Helvetii were able to beat off the attacks of their opponents. Weary of the constant struggle, they at last resolved, B.C. 61, to leave their territory. This, as we have seen, they did three years later, when some smaller tribes, among them the Germanic Tulingi, threw in their lot with them. The Jura region, the entrance to southern Gaul, thus lay open to the Teutons. In the same year there appeared on the Middle Rhine, probably in the Taunus region, a powerful Suebian army. A hundred Gaus, under the leadership of two brothers named Nesua, possibly Masua, and Simbirius, and threatened to invade from this point the territory of the Treveri on the opposite bank. Finally, there was a great restlessness also on the Lower Rhine, among the tribes inhabiting the right bank, especially among the Usipites and the Tencteri, in consequence especially of the repeated aggressions of the warlike Suebi. This was the condition of affairs when Caesar, B.C. 58, took up his command in Gaul. 
He was well aware of the danger to the Roman occupation which lay in these wholesale immigrations of Germanic hordes into Gaulish territory, and it was consequently his first care to take prompt measures to meet the Teutonic peril. It is well known how he performed this task, how he removed the haunting dread of a general eruption of the Germanic people into Celtic territory, and at the same time established security and order upon the Rhine frontier. The restoration of the conquered Helvetii to their abandoned territory in order that they might continue to serve, but now in the Roman interest, as a buffer state, secured Gaul, especially the Valley of Rhone, against incursions from the direction of the Upper Rhine. His victory over Ariovistus destroyed the latter's vast levies, and with them his ascendancy, but not, and herein we see again the far-sighted policy of the conqueror, the work of colonization begun by the Germanic ruler. The tribes of the Vangiones, Nemeti, Centriboci, which he had settled in Gaul, were allowed to remain where they were, and like the Helvetii, were placed under the Roman suzerainty, while retaining their racial independence. Ut arserent, non ut custodirentur. But while Caesar allowed these settlements to remain, he repressed with all the greater energy all further efforts of expansion on the part of the dwellers of the Upper Rhine. True, the Swabian bands which in 58 had mustered on the right bank of the river had retired on receiving news of the defeat of Ariovistus, so that there was no fighting with them. But the attempt of Eusipetes and Tancteri, the following year, to find a new home for themselves in Gaul led to a battle, in which a large portion of them perished, and the rest were flung back across the Rhine. Augustus assumed the offensive against the Teutons. Even though the extension of the Roman dominion as far as the Elbe affected by the brilliant military successes of the two stepsons of the emperor was of short duration, the year 89 witnessed the loss of the territory won by the expenditure of so much blood, of which it had been proposed to make a new province of Germania Magna. Yet the Rhine frontier was secured for a considerable time to come by a belt of fortresses garrisoned by an enemy of nearly 80,000 men. This frontier was not seriously threatened for 200 years thereafter. Throughout that period, except for a few insignificant raids, Gaul's eastern neighbor remained quiescent. It was only in the 3rd century that unrest chewed itself again, thereafter steadily increasing as time went on, and the cause of this was the appearance of two powerful confederacies which thenceforward dominated the history of the Rhineland, the Alamans and the Franks. While the expansion of the Teutons toward the west was thus barred by the Romans, it proceeded the more vigorously in a southward and southeastward direction. It is true that but little certain information has come down to us. The movements of population implied by the appearance of Marcomanni in Bohemia, the Quadi in Moravia, of the Neristi between the Bomerwald and the Danube, of the Buri, Lacringi, Victavali in the north of the Hungarian lowlands, are all more or less shrouded in obscurity, and it is but rarely possible to find a clue to their relations. About B.C. 60, the Boii had been forced by the advance of the Germanic races from the north to abandon their ancestral possessions. A 
portion of them found a dwelling place in Pannonia. Another portion, on its way from Noricum, joined the Helvetic migration. The north of the country, thus left unoccupied, was immediately taken up by the Hermanduric, Semnonic, and Vandalic bands, offshoots of the three great tribes which flanked Bohemia on the north. From them were doubtless sprung the peoples who at a later time are met with here at the southern base of the Sudetes, the Sudini, Bativi, and Corconti. They were followed by the Marcomanni, who doubtless in consequence of the military successes of Drusus in Germany, made their way, under the leadership of their chief Marbod, to the further side of the Bomerwald and occupied the main portion of the former country of the Boii. The powerful kingdom which this Germanic prince established by bringing in further masses of settlers and by subjugating the surrounding tribes, even the powerful Semnones, the Langobards, the Goths, and the Lugi, Vandals, are said to have acknowledged his suzerainty, had no rival in northern Europe, and with its trained army of 70,000 footmen and 4,000 horse, soon became a menace to the Roman Empire. The importance which was attached to it, and to the commanding personality of its ruler by the Romans themselves, is evident from the extraordinary military preparations which Tiberius set on foot. 86. As is well known, the intervention of the Roman arms was not in the end called for, but what even they might not have been able to accomplish was effected by inner dissension. In the struggle for the supremacy of Germany against Arminius at the head of the Cheruski, and of all the other peoples who flocked to the standard of the Liberator Germani, Marbod was defeated, and the fate of his kingdom was thereby decided. First the Semnones and Langobards ranged themselves on the side of his adversaries, then one tribe after another, so that he found his dominions in the end reduced to their original extent the country of the Marcomanni. With the ruin of his empire, his own fate overtook him. Treachery in his own camp forced him to seek the protection of the Romans. The fall of its founder did not, however, affect the stability of the Bohemian king of the Suebi. Although the Marcomanni were never afterwards able to regain their ascendancy, they held their own far into the decline of the ancient world in the country which they had occupied under Marbod's leadership. Indeed, after a time their power was so far revived that in alliance with the Quadi they were able to dominate the Upper Danube frontier for fully a century. The earliest mention of the Quadi occurs in the geographer Strabo. He names them among the Suebian tribes who settled within the Hercynian forest, the mountains which form the frontiers of Bohemia. The country which they inhabited is nearly the present Moravia. Its eastern frontier was formed by the March, the ancient Maris. That they were of Suabian origin is clear from the express testimony of Strabo, as well as on linguistic grounds. The only point which remains doubtful is whether even before their coming into Moravia they had formed a political unit, or whether they were a migratory band sent out by one of the great Suabian peoples perhaps the Semnones, which only developed into a united and independent national community after settling in Moravia. The former, however, is more probable. Like their western neighbors, the Marcomanni, 
The Quadi were the successors of a Celtic people. As the Boii had been settled in Bohemia, so in Moravia, from a remote period and down to Caesar's day, had been settled the Volcae Tectosages. Seeing that, about B.C. 60, the advance of the Teutons from the north over the Erzgebirge and Sudetes caused the Boii to leave their territory, it is probable that at the same time, or a little later, the peoples further to the east became involved in a struggle with the invaders. But whereas the Boii, by their prompt retirement, escaped the danger, the Tectosages, it would appear, were utterly destroyed. We find the Quade soon after in possession of their territory, and since we get no hint of the fate of the Moravian Tectosages, the Romans cannot yet have been in possession of the neighboring country of Noricum. Their destruction must therefore have fallen before B.C. 15, when Noricum passed under the dominion of Rome. If this hypothesis is correct, the eruption of the Quadi into Moravia took place shortly after the Boii had left Bohemia. In any case, a considerable time before the occupation of that country by the Marcomanni. To the west of the Marcomanni, between the Bomerwald and the Danube as far up as the river Nab, were settled the Neristi. It is equally uncertain whence they came, and when they appeared in this region. It is possible, though that is the most that can be said, that like their eastern neighbors they belong to the Suabian Confederacy. Tacitus certainly counts them as members of it, and that they are to be numbered among the peoples which, according to Strabo, Marbod had settled in the region of the Hercinia Silva. Guarding the flanks, as it were, of the southern territories of the Teutons lay two settlements planted by the Romans. In the west, the Hermunduri between the Upper Main and the Danube, and in the east, the Vanianic kingdom of the Suebi. The former came into being B.C. 6-2, the Roman general L. Domitius Ahenobarbus, having assigned to a band of Hermunduri the eastern part of the territory left free by the migration of the Marcomanni into Bohemia, the latter was created by settlement of bands of Suabian warriors belonging to the following of the fallen Suabian leaders, Marbod and Kesvalda. The Maris is, of course, the march. The Cusis, as this Suabian settlement cannot have been very extensive, was probably the Vag though it may have been the Gran, which lies further to the east. The Bemoi of Ptolemy are probably identical with these Suabians of northern Hungary, who come into notice several times in the course of the first century. As they disappear later, they were probably absorbed by the Quadi. Further towards the northeast, in the Hungarian Erzgebirge, and beyond in the upper regions of the Vistula, we find in the first century of our era the Buri and Sidones. The former, who are mentioned as early as Strabo, were probably of Bastarnian, and the latter of Lugian origin. Further still, abutting on the eastern flank of the Sidones, were the Burgiones, Ambrones, and Fregundiones, doubtless also Bastarnian. If we now review the ethnographic situation in ancient Germany about the close of the first century AD, we find on its western frontier, in the eastern basis of the Lower Rhine, the Chamavi, the Bructeri, the Usipii, the Tincteri, the Chatuarii, and Tubantes. Further in the interior, on both sides of the Weser, 
the great tribes of the Chatti and the Cheruski. Further to the north, the Angrivarii, and on the North Sea coast, the Chauki and the Frisians. In the heart of the country, three powerful Swabian populations have their seat. On the western bank of the Middle Elbe, extending as far south as the Rhaetian frontier, the Hermanduri. North of them, on the western bank of the Lower Elbe, the Langobards. And beyond that river, in the basin of the Havel and the Spree, the Semnones, who were held to be the primitive stock of the Suebi. The eastern part of the country was mainly occupied by the Lugii. The tribes, too, which appeared later, in the wars of the Marcomanni, the Victivali, Astingi, and Lacringi, were doubtless also Vandalic. Northward, in the region of the Vartha and Nets, dwelt the Burgundiones or Burgundi. Further north still, on the Pomeranian Baltic coast, the Rugii and Lemovi, next to whom on the western side came, with some of the smaller tribes, the Saxons. North of these again, on the Jutish peninsula, lay the Anglii and the Varini. Turning back to the Vistula again, we find on its eastern bank the Goths, who apparently, by the beginning of our era, had spread from the shores of its estuary to its upper waters. In the south, the portion of the Hermanduri which had its seat between the Main and the Danube formed the first link in a long chain, consisting of Neristi, Marcomanni, Quadi, Buri, and finally, beyond the Confinium Germanorum, the numerous branches of the Bastarnae. It was, therefore, a vast territory which the Germanic races claimed for their own, and yet, as was soon to appear, it was too narrow for the energies of these young and vigorous nations. On their north foamed the sea. To the east yawned the desert steppes of southern Russia. Thus, any further expansion could only take a westward or southward direction. But on one side, as on the other, lay the unbroken line of the Roman frontier. Any attempt at expansion in either of these directions must inevitably lead to an immediate collision with the Roman Empire. The storm which lowered upon the Bohemian mountains was soon to burst. Mighty forces were doubtless at work in the interior of Germany, which shortly after the accession of Marcus Aurelius stirred up the whole mass of nations from the Bomerwald to the Carpathians, and let loose a tempest such as the Roman Empire had never before encountered on its frontiers. In the summer of 167, hosts of barbarians mustered along the line of the Danube, ready to make an inroad into Roman territory. The Praetorian prefect, Furius Victorinus, was defeated and slain with most of his troops, and the invading flood poured forward over the unprotected provinces. Not until the two emperors reached the seat of the war, spring, 168, was the plundering and ravaging stopped. The barbarians then withdrew to the further side of the Danube and declared their readiness to enter into negotiations. There, in the winter of 168-69, to 69, the plague broke out, with fearful violence in the Roman camp, and at once the complexion of events changed for the worse. In the spring, in the absence of the emperors, who on the outbreak of the epidemic had returned to the capital, the army, weakened and disorganized by disease, suffered another severe defeat, and the Praetorian prefect Macrinius Vindex met his death. 
following up their victory, the Teutons assumed the offensive all along the line. A surging mass of people, Hermanduri, Neristi, Marcomanni, Quadi, Lacringi, Guri, Victivali, Astingi, and other tribes, Germanic and Eazigic, swept over the provinces of Raetia, Noricum, Pannonia, and Daid. Some detached bands even pushed their way into North Italy, laid siege to Aquileia, and destroyed Opitergium further to the west. But the danger passed as quickly as it had arisen. Effective measures were instantly taken. The flood of invasion was stemmed, and as it receded, the Romans, led by the emperor in person, took the aggressive. All the Teutons and Aziyiges, who remained on the south bank, were forced back across the river. So successful were the Romans that by the year 171, the Quadi sued for peace. In the following year, the Roman army crossed the Danube and laid waste to the country of the Marcomanni. Thus, the two most dangerous adversaries had been subdued, and the war seemed over. But by the year 174, the empire again found himself obliged to return to Germany. Scarcely had he entered the country of the Quadi, when the army was placed in a highly dangerous position by an enveloping movement of the enemy and by want of water. Suddenly a torrent of rain descended, and the legionaries saw in the miracle a proof of the favor of the gods and were inspired to fight with splendid valor and gained a complete victory. This broke the resistance of the Quadi, and the Marcomanni were also forced to make peace. In 176, the emperor returned to Rome, and there celebrated, along with his son Commodus, a well-deserved triumph. In 177, Marcus rejoined his army with the purpose of completing the work of conquest. Two new provinces, Marcomania and Sarmatia, were to be added to his empire and were to round off his northern boundary. The war began, apparently before the end of 177, with an attack upon the Quadi, after which the Marcomanni were to be dealt with. In the course of the Three Years' War, both peoples were so thoroughly exhausted that when the emperor suddenly died, 17th of March 180, their military strength was already broken. One of the first acts of Commodus, an unworthy successor to his father, was to make peace which surrendered to the all-but-beaten enemy every advantage that had been wrested from them. The struggle for the lands to the north of the Danube was at an end. Meanwhile, the Romans were confronted, about the close of the century, with a new and dangerous enemy to the west. In the angle between the main and the frontiers of Upper Germany and Raetia, by the Alamans. As their name indicates, the Alamans were not a single tribe, but a union of tribes, a confederacy. We hear somewhat later the names of several of the component tribes, the Juthungi, the Brisigavi, the Businobantes, and the Lentienses. Whence did they come? No doubt the nucleus of this confederacy was formed by the southern divisions of the Hermanduri. To these, there may have attached themselves various fragments of people which had split off before and after the Marcomannic War, just as later, toward the middle of the 3rd century, the Semnones, in the course of a migration southward, 
probably joined this confederacy and were absorbed by it. Before long, as early as 213, the new nation came into contact with the Romans. So far as can be made out from the confused account which is given us of their first appearance, they had invaded Raetia, upon which, whereupon the emperor Caracalla took the field against them, flung them back across the frontier, and advanced into their territory, carrying all before him. Before twenty years had passed, the Teutons, presumably the Alamans again, renewed the attack upon the Roman frontier defenses. So threatening was the situation that the emperor Severus Alexander felt obliged to break off his campaign against the Persians and take over in person the direction of the operations on the Rhine. Negotiations had already begun before his assassination, March 235, but his successor, the rough and soldierly Maximin, brought new life into the campaign. Advancing by forced marches into the country of the Alamans, he drove the barbarians before him without serious resistance, laid waste to their fields and dwellings far and wide, and finally defeated them in the interior of their territory. <laughs>